Hey, Green Future Growers. Welcome to Season 4. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. I'm here to help you create, grow, and enjoy your own organic oasis. I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Friday, January 21st, 2022. And I have an amazing guest on the line. You are just going to love him. He is a prolific writer and his his words, his way of describing things. And he's just eloquent and, and makes you just want to read more and just... Um, you're going to love his books and his story. I'm sure I, I've just been um, really enjoying perusing his website and, and his stories. And um, so here from South Carolina is Farmer Jinx. So welcome to the show, Farmer Jinx. Hey, thank you. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. We're um, in the middle of our winter, which is uh, a typical winter for us is kind of gray and gloomy. And we are going to drop down to 20 eight degrees Fahrenheit tonight, which is really cold for us. <laughs> All right. Well, that's kind of warm for me. <laughs> I figure. Good to know. Or not warm, but like we've been actually, we've been like the snow's been melting lately. It's been kind of just, it's just everything's a sheet of ice. Um, so why don't you go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself? I mean, you have an amazing background. And so um, I'm just going to mute my mic and let you tell listeners a little bit about your story. I guess I was kind of born to it, having the last name of Farmer, and I was born on a um, country farm in South Carolina. Uh, that's your real last name? Yeah, that's my last name. Oh. See what I mean? What's Is Jenks your first name? I thought Jenks was your last oh, name. Oh, it's complicated Southern stuff. My, my name is Augustus <laughs> Jenkins Farmer the Third. So I go by Jinx. Got it. Uh, no worries. I love the uh, the old. Is that like an actual phone, like a landline, or is that your cell phone? No, that's a landline phone? with a cord, and it hangs on the wall, and you have to dial it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we we are way out in the country. Uh, one of the big issues for us is is infrastructure. We we have this business that I'm going to tell you about, but we have to operate it on a um uh a satellite link because we don't have broadband out here um mm -hmm. we're, we're doing really great this morning but back to uh back to telling you about me i guess okay all right so um i like a lot of country kids i ran away and wanted to see the world and see better things and i ended up after lots of travel in seattle and i did a, a master's in public garden management out there and came back to South Carolina oh in the early 90s and started working with this plant that I specialize in today so that's coming on 30 years of dealing with this one specific genus and I was uh, lucky that my my family's farm was still here um, and my my family still owns it so I took over just an acre and have that in organic, organically managed. And I, you could say permatill practices. We don't follow everything from um, permaculture, but we, uh, we're a no-till um, organic row crop, but our row crop happens to be a very specific lily. And one of the things that you, you mentioned, I really appreciate that I, uh, have a little bit of a reputation as a writer because I was definitely a C student in high school and English class and uh, never had any, any real thought that I could do that until I got this passion for gardening and especially for organic gardening and for this plant and realized I needed to tell people about it. And I guess I pulled on um lots of folks who were my, my mentors and my elders who were in a, had a great tradition of like lots of Southerners of, uh, of dramatic storytelling. And I've been able to incorporate that and write uh, three books now and, uh, and lots of blogs and essays. I even write a little bit of fiction now. 
Well, we can't wait to read more. And I can't wait to read the three books that you've written. I got, I ordered the um, Deeply Rooted Wisdom from the library this morning. And um, I can't wait to your new book about this. Lily comes out. I mean, it's just, or is it out? It, yeah. I think it, I started, right? Because I started reading it on Amazon this morning. It is just like I was so engrossed I'm like so is it, it's a something that like brings in night moths and only blooms in the dark and just is is um oh my gosh I learned so much already just reading the first couple of pages like it, it can go it, it can grow all around America and is that right uh, the, well it can grow around the the coastal states and probably not in Montana uh you never know because oh. a lot of what we know about it we've only learned in the last um uh 20 years you know for a long time this... it just looks like it has such beautiful colors sorry yeah no it's a it's a beautiful plant it's primarily african although there are species that we have a native species oh. um there are asian species so it grows uh it traditionally it was only grown in the south and about 30 years ago we started sending it out to zoos and gardens and asking people just to try it. So now we know it um, with care, it can grow into uh, New York area, um, Indianapolis, there's a, a guy growing them there and up and down the Pacific coast. Um, I hadn't had anybody try it as in a colder zone as you are. Um, so that that new book came out just a couple of weeks ago and has, uh, Man, it's done really well on the Amazon charts, which is weird because uh, it's a very specialized book. You know, it could be considered really kind of geeky, but I tried really hard to tell stories to make it interesting to people who who maybe can't even grow it and people who don't actually want to grow it. I tried to make it a compelling book about my obsession um, as well as a guide to growing. You know what? That's what I was looking at the funky little flower farm on Amazon and your press person sent me all like almost a whole copy of the book digitally. I read a lot this morning. I did read a lot. <laughs> and because um, I'm an inspiring, aspiring author. And um, but uh, well, it sounds so funny for you to say press person because Matthew's sitting right here and he our, our press person lives down the dirt road from us and walks to work sometimes. And <laughs> we um, primarily do outside work. You know, um, I, I do love this writing, but we make our money by through manual labor and growing. And we also do garden design. Um, we had the other book that you mentioned, The Funky Little Flower Farm, is meant to be stories about how we manage an organic farm organically uh, through the year. So it's done as a calendar. And in every month, there's a story about something that we do. It's not really a lesson. You have to kind of pull the lessons out. For example, there's a, the February um, chapter is about burning the fields. And, you know, so it's my memories of smoke and my fascination with fire, but it also has wrapped into it why that's good for the soil and how that works with our crop. And also in the February section, we have a plant of the month, I guess, for each time we use a Japanese concept of a Siki calendar, um, which is a calendar that's built around natural occurrences, like the, you know, the month that the apple blossoms drop. Um, so in each of those, uh, each of those chapters, we have a, an essay that's kind of like the first one. It's about my memories. It's about growing up in the deep South and on a rural farm and and discussing a certain plant that indicates that that season is passing. Did you know that the Native Americans do that too? Like their months are named like when the geese fly and and when the blossoms bloom too. They have they have very like their months are kind of named like that too. No, I, I had no idea. 
Well, I, I worked on an Indian reservation for six years as an elementary teacher and, and you know, we would teach the kids the month's names and in their long language. Yeah. Oh, that, so, yeah. That's I thought, right. So I thought that was interesting when I was reading that. You know what? We have not told the listeners what your new book and what the flower is called. The title of the new book is Crinum, C-R-I-N-U-M. And the subtitle is Unearthing the History and Cultivation of the World's Biggest Bulbs. Now, that title or that subtitle was intended to be a little bit provocative. If you get online and search for the world's biggest bulbs, you get all kinds of things from crazy light bulbs to giant onions. There are other plants that do have big underground structures. Like, do you know the um, what they call corpse lily? You see it on social media all the time. There would be some greenhouse, you know, in Philadelphia showing off their 10 foot tall corpse lily in flower. That is technically, mm. those are technically not bulbs. So I was being very specific with this. It's a botanical term that has a specific definition. But I also kind of want to stimulate people to jump up and say, wait a minute, you know, I got a bulb that's bigger than yours. And we've even toyed around with doing like a little online photo gallery, you know, send us a picture of your big bulbs. Do you think that's tacky? Oh, cool. Is that cool? No, oh, it's not tacky. No. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Hey, um, so tell listeners more about the bulbs. Like I was saying, like, is it or the flower like it blooms at night is that right they so they open at night crinums are um are basically have evolved with moths and they open to their fullest at night and they release their fragrance at night um they to me they look absolutely their best about 6 p.m in the summertime and if people want to imagine what it looks like think about those amaryllis that you get at christmas time those amaryllis that, you know, you get in a pot and you force up that one stalk and it has this big trumpet red flower. Crinums look like that. They're related to that, but they are generally bigger. So we have crinums that flower from, oh, three feet tall to almost six feet tall. The, the thing about the nighttime is that they, um, they're kind of fascinating to watch. The flowers you can literally sit, if you're patient enough, and watch the flowers move. They lift themselves up, they open wider, and they release their fragrance. And then our field in the summer evening is absolutely alive with moths. And of course, you know, because we're organic toads and all kinds of creatures. And it said these moths travel really long ways, right? And so it's helping spread diversity throughout our environment. Wasn't that something I read? Yeah, so in the wild, um, you know, plants need to, to spread their genes. So you get, so you don't have uh, one group of plants only fertilizing and pollinating each other. So you have something like a moth, which is a pretty big creature and can go a long way. Um, so you carry the genes and you mix the genes of one plant with another one or another population that occurs, you know, a mile down the, the stream or, or across a field. The other, um, the other, the other little crazy fact about that or something that I like a lot, again, this is a geeky wordsman's thing, I guess, is the term for that is sphingophilius. So a plant like that is considered a flower that is sphingophilious, and that's referring to the, um, the family of moss that it attracts. A lot of our crinums, though, are actually hybrids, and they don't set seeds. So we do have one that's a, a South African native. It comes from the Orange Free State, uh, which was a established inside South Africa and is the origin of the Orange River. So this crinum um, is the most cold hardy and it's a completely natural species and it sets lots and lots of seeds that are easy to grow.
the other ones that we grow are are hybrids lots of times between an American crinum and an African crinum. But in that hybridization process, lots of those are sterile. So we have to grow those by dividing them. So we have these, um, these you know, not too difficult techniques, people that who, who divide uh, peonies or daylilies or anything like that. You, you know what you do, you just dig the thing up, tease out the babies and then set them out and row them out. Are we doing all right, Jackie? Yeah, I was, because um, that's what I was wondering is that you said it, the one sets lots of seeds and I was all confused because I thought, wait, isn't it a bulb? But but that answers my question about the- Yeah, so- Providing um, a more like- Yeah, okay, good. Uh, you want more about them? Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the things that fascinates me with crinums, uh, is that for years, I, I only read our literature that was written in English and in English literature, where since the late 1700s, crinums have been a, a source of fascination for botanists, but of course, lots of myths get promulgated by isolation, I guess. So they were sure. sometimes called poison bulbs. And most of my life I have read mm -hmm. and I was told that crinums were toxic. Then I, I got to go to Africa and I spent some time in, um, in Southeast Asia. And I realized that they're like a lot of things, they are toxic at a certain level, but toxins and the um, alkaloids in the crinums are actually really helpful at lesser levels. So they're used for medicine all around the world. And they're so important in, in African cultures that there's even some concern right now about them being over harvested from the wild. So I use, um, mm, interesting. So they grow all over Africa or like in, in what part of Africa? Uh, lots, lots and lots of Africa. I've seen them from Madagascar. I've seen them in the wild there, uh, into Zambia and Zimbabwe all the way across the middle and southern parts of Africa. I have seen them in photos from, um, from more northern places like Tanzania. Um, there, South Africa has the most diversity of crinums. So there they will go from size-wise, there are crinums that are like six or eight inches tall. And then there are also crinums that have bulbs that are 30 inches around. They're also crying them in India and some of the- Indi 30 inches, that's like almost a, a meter, like almost a yard. Yeah, like a basket. A bulb that's that big? I mean, that's like a bowl. <laughs> no, they're like- they're, A large bowl. They're basketball sized bulbs. And on top of that, they grow in wow. clumps. So uh, I have a couple of pictures on our website. And then where did we do? Um, oh, we did a, a blog on something called Garden Rant where there were three of us, including Matthew, yeah. our press man, um, holding on to big bulbs and comparing the bulbs. And they were all like basketball, volleyball sized bulbs. But the crazy thing is they grow in clumps, you know, like a lot of bulbs do. So when you get a really old clump, the thing might weigh 400 pounds. In order to dig a clump like that, we 400 pounds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we have to treat it like, um, yeah, with all the compacted dirt and the flesh of all these big bulbs that are all tied together. So we have to treat it like sometimes we'll have to chain it up and drag it out of the hole with a tractor. Oh, my gosh. That's like a tree root. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes we dig them exactly. So then do the flowers get huge from a bulb like that? Uh, we have flowers that range from six inches long and about six inches across to our largest flower is about nine inches long. And then, of course, you have multiple flowers on a stalk. So that stalk is about 18 inches across. One of the funny things is our largest flowering crinum actually has a relatively small bulb. 
huh so do these make like good like wedding flowers like bouquets and stuff do they have like any kind of like a last do they last a while if you pick them and put them in a vase they make great cut flowers for home the florists don't like them because like daylilies as one flower opens another one closes so florists have to do what's called cleaning you know so if you're real tidy and you need that perfect florist bouquet these are not for you but they have been used um traditionally in mexico as florist flowers uh wedding flowers and we had not too long ago about 20 miles from us is the medical college of georgia so a, a florist did come out and cut buckets of them and so she took them fresh and used them fresh for a big event and then you know one of the things we've had to do because this is an obscure bulb is promote the hell out of it you know we've had to teach people what it is and teach them to love it on top of that we have to look for different ways to uh to maximize income so the stalks of those flowers are actually really beautiful structurally so when all the flowers fall off you have this like three foot long stalk that's as big around as I don't know, like a skinny banana. And it has these crazy splayed out tips on it. So we started promoting the stalks as a cut flower because the stalks last forever, even without water. But to add a little humor to it and to make it intriguing, we gave them the, uh, the title or the name of chicken feet flowers because they kind of look like an old chicken's foot splayed out, which sounds gross, but you look them up. They're pretty handsome. So do they have like leaves that are still on the stalks that make like greenery to go in a bouquet with like other flowers? Is that what you're saying? No, when we send them out, it's just a, a naked green stalk that's fleshy. Um, uh, you know, it kind of depends on how long we cut them. Um, so it's, it, no, it almost looks like more like a, a stick, I guess. It's a, it's a very architectural thing. Um, so we've done, done that kind of thing to try to increase income, right? We're trying to make our little farm make as much money as it can. And uh, on top of that, we've, we do crinum gifts. So we send out these gift packages. Mother's Day is a big time for us. We um, do really pretty packages. My partner my, and my husband is Japanese and he loves packaging. Um, we had a, somebody called us at Christmas and said, oh my gosh, that was the prettiest gift package I have ever received. So you know, that's just another way to add value to our product and to keep somebody coming back. Because say, if you bought one, these things are so tough and vigorous that you're not likely to come back and buy too often, right? But this is a way to keep you engaged and to let you share that little bit of, um, of love with friends. That's cool. <laughs> I actually have a magazine I'm going to send you. They just sent out a um, call for garden, creative garden stories. So you might be interested. It's just a short, they want like a $250, uh, 250 word article. Um, but they're looking for like creative seed packet. I don't know. Okay. I'll, I'll send you. That. Yeah, that'll be great. You know, it's a big challenge for a lot of people who have small and organic farms is how do you, um, how do you keep yourself competitive? How do you build your niche? And, and how do you do that without um, driving yourself crazy too? So we, we <laughs> oh, do I know that story? Like I can't, I just even saw a post the other day about niche down, niche down, niche down till it hurts. And like, I always feel like that's what I need to do is try to figure out my very specific niche. Like I changed my name from the Organic Gardener podcast to the Green Organic Gardener podcast, thinking maybe that would help, but it it doesn't seem to have. That didn't seem to be the answer. But I I, lo I love the idea that you are interviewing people from around the world and and telling their stories. You know the kind of plants that you talk about and grow in Montana 
uh, may not be something that I could ever grow, but the lessons that I can learn from how you do it are invaluable. Well, and you know, the majority of my listeners are in California, of course, because California one has tons of people and also they have a huge garden season and then Texas, New York, um, Florida. So yeah, for sure. Like I, I actually probably the least number is Montana because we have so few people. And then also our garden season is short, although there, there's a certainly a large, you know, gardening um, population in Montana, like a lot of people that live here, you know, probably our percentage per capita is probably a larger amount of gardeners than other states. But anyway, um, I was going to ask you about, um, oh, what was I going to ask about um, as far as like being a flower farmer? Because I love that, like the funky little flower farm, like that whole title and things. And I, oh, I wanted to ask you about the garden design because last summer, so because of the pandemic and I'm just so sick of my computer, I'm still struggling to get on my computer because as a teacher, um, I was in the classroom. The last time I was in the classroom was when the pandemic started and the, like those three months of just being online with my students from seven in the morning till two 30 in the afternoon. And then on top of that, having to record reading and math lessons for them to watch. Um, I just was like, I would love to just mow lawns this summer. <laughs> a lot of times during the summer, I'll take a job like in a kitchen and a restaurant or something. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to start a, you know, organic lawn business. And so I posted and I, on Facebook to see if anybody was interested. And I ended up with these people asking me to help them with their gardens instead. And I found that I have a nap because my husband and I, we've been here, we'll be married 28, 29 years this year, I think. Um, and so I know a lot about, you know, we started out with two very small beds and have grown. I mean, now my husband grows almost all our produce and just, but I know our area really well. And I found that I have a really good knack for telling people very specifically, do not do this. And this is what you do want to do. And I, I was pretty successful last summer. And so I'm really curious about that part of your business and how that kind of works into because I was reading your garden design things and then also like the fact that you have a master's degree in growing botanical like haven't you started a couple of botanical gardens or something I have um is that what it said or designed and yeah that's that's right in fact that was one reason I came back to South Carolina I was hired to be the first curator for the first botanical garden to be built here um since I think the 50s and uh I, so I was not, um, you know, the, the, the big vision person that was my boss. He had done all the groundwork and got lots of money and lots of support, but I came to be the plantsman and I spent eight years there. I'm still very tied to them through their um, volunteers and my friends who are on the staff now, but then I was uh, pulled away from that to, um, start a botanical garden for a, a couple, a guy who was in, based in Texas and his, um, uh, his partner wife in South Carolina, who were extraordinarily rich and wanted to set up their little family farm as a botanical garden. So to have something that would outlast and live beyond them. So you, can you like explain to like me and listeners, like what makes something a botanical garden as compared to just a regular garden? Okay, great. I love that question. You know, sure. we can, so we can all have a garden. We can all have a beautiful garden and we can all do uh, lots of cool stuff in it. We can share it and that happens at your house and that might happen at a park or in a community garden or uh, even a even a garden that's designed to have uh, weddings and events, but what makes a botanical garden a botanical garden is that it does other things more behind the scenes, things that are museum functions. So if you think about say an art museum or a his, uh, agricultural history museum, that place does all the things we just talked about 
It may have weddings, it may have visitors, it may have an educational component, but it also has things like conservation programs or preservation of specific objects. And all of those objects are documented and tracked in a database. And they also have the, the background and the, the money somehow associated with them to make sure that what is happening continues to happen. So a botanical garden is simply a living museum, just like a zoo. You know, there are certain plants like um, the, in the Riverbanks Botanical Garden in South Carolina, the one that I got to start, we established Crinum as the core collection. So we put our background research into it. We show them off in the garden. We teach people how to use these plants in their landscape, but there's also breeding work going on in the background and propagation work. And there's the, the documentation. So where you and I might get a crinum from our Aunt Jenny and just love it and call it Aunt Jenny's Lily, um, in a botanical garden, it is their job to figure out what it is and who Aunt Jenny was. And if she got, if she got it, maybe she collected it on her, her honeymoon to Kenya, you know, to have that, the, to maintain the conservation of that, um, of that plant. Another thing uh, botanical gardens do, for example, um, we have a, a native lily here that is threatened in our rivers because the rivers have been dammed. They've changed the temperature of the rivers and the lily can't tolerate that. So the botanical garden here is working with the Department of Natural Resources. Um, they, they go into the wild, they collect the remaining plants, they propagate them, and they do that in a way that is, um, is sustainable, monitored, and then they return these plants to, to places where the temperature is, um, is the, will support the growth. So does that, does that answer your question about what makes a botanical garden a botanical garden? It does, for sure. I mean, I've been to like, I mean, I actually grew up in New York on Long Island. So I've been to the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens numerous times. When we took a trip to Washington, D.C., we went to the Botanical Gardens there. Like, um, so to me, yeah, it does like, it, it is like going to a museum. That's interesting. I like the way that you talked about that. And like, isn't there like a giant conservatory type of botanical garden in Seattle, like up on some big hill. I want to say I went there too when I was in college. At Volunteer Park, there's a um, conservatory. Um, and now there's the Amazon Conservatory, which I haven't been to. And, and I think that they operate like a private botanical garden. I think that a lot of their plants are documented. Um, but yeah, we have awesome botanical gardens throughout the country. Um, I don't, there's one in Montana somewhere because I talked to the guy or I tried to get him to come on. I wanted to talk to him because I've been really struggling to grow blueberries and he has some kind of, I don't know if it's a wild blueberry. And then people are always wanting to grow. We have these berries here called huckleberries and people are always asking about like, how can I cultivate huckleberries? How do I get huckleberries? But the huckleberries grow like really high up where most people don't live. Right. There are uh, lots of uh, botanical gardens are associated with universities. Um, I, I don't know the botanical garden in Montana. I know that um, in Boise, there's a, a really beautiful botanical garden that works lots with their native plants. And then Denver, of course, has Denver has one of the most popular and successful botanical gardens uh, in the isn't there like a butterfly place there too near that gosh denver has excelled you know? at doing the denver botanical garden has excelled at getting people into the garden so they do butterfly exhibits and art exhibits and music and beer fest it's a really awesome um a really awesome place on top of that they do what we were talking about Earlier, they buy up land all around Colorado and put it into conservation. 
Hmm. Let's see out there. Um, lots in Seattle. Portland has a great garden. Um, Vancouver, of course, has killer gardens. Texas, Jefferson City, Montana is Tizer Botanic Gardens. Yeah, Matthew was telling me about the garden, um, the Tizer Botanic in Jefferson City, but I I don't know anything about that. Um, that could be. Some of my some of my other favorites. I've done I've done lectures out at um. Well, I used to do a lot at Epcot, um, oh. which I, I always loved. That was lots of fun. Um, the uh, Brooklyn Botanic, they, they get plants from us. And um, down now, some of my favorites are down in Florida because that, that's an easy trip. You know, we're, we're definitely not the Florida climate, but it's easy, a easy like six hour trip for us to get down and Gardens like Bot Tower Garden down in Lake Wales. Some of the old Florida gardens I find really, really beautiful, um, especially because a lot of those older Florida gardens kind of went into decline. And I, I think a garden that can last without constant care and without chemicals and without irrigation, those are the kind of gardens that um, intrigue me if they maintain their beauty without, without the human hand. Absolutely. Hey. Okay. Okay. Let's get to some of my regular questions. Okay. So what is something that grew well this year? Something that grew absolutely well for us that I was shocked by and um, had a lot of fun with was something called edible leaf okra. It's a, a y'all know, you know what okra is, right? Um, a big growing hibiscus like plant, mm -hmm. but normally its leaves are just hairy and sticky and itchy. But this is one from the, um, I think it came from Indonesia. Um, it is smooth and silky and a little bit rubbery and it made this beautiful plant that had a, a marijuana like leaf but it had a reddish stem and red veination through it the leaves were um oh, they got to be the, about the size of a, a big hand and we'd use those as a cut green so they're um we would chop them and use them in salads or drop them into stews so again, I love something that grows, like those things went from seed to six feet high in no time with no irrigation and no synthetic fertilizer. And that makes me love it even more. If it goes through our summer climate, thriving and producing food and beauty all year, I'm all about it. So edible leaf okra was one thing that we loved. We had um, a... Well, we, we always grow loofahs. Um, this year we grew also a um, bitter melon, which is an annual vine. Do, do, do folks grow that like as a sort of um, hobby plant, I guess? It would, you'd start it from seed in the summertime. It's completely tropical. So no matter where you are, you grow, grow it from seed. It's a fast growing vine and it has these warty green cucumber-like fruits only they're bitter, hence the name. And our, um, our friends from Cambodia tried and tried and tried to make us love them. But honestly, it's, just, it's one of those tastes that I think you have to have like tasted it in your mother's breast milk to really love it because it's just too sharp on the tongue for me. But it was a beautiful plant, a pretty vine. Um, those were probably my two two favorite new things. I'm always growing alternative uh, vegetables and fruits, looking for things that will take the place of things that need too much care. Well, that's right up my alley. Uh, I've heard of bitter, I wanna say I read the story called Recipe for Persuasion about this like woman who runs a restaurant she's from india and she gets on like this you know tv cooking show and uh she makes bitter melon 
anyway. Yeah, bitter. I, I think um, but, uh, I think in southern India, bitter melon is used in curries and uh, it's and it's fried. We actually we have a little Facebook live show, and an Indian friend came and she tried to make bitter melon in a way that I would like it to, but um, she didn't succeed. Maybe that's the. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about something that didn't go the way you thought it was gonna? Well, it didn't let's see. Um, something maybe that's usually prolific and didn't didn't perform. Yeah, I was thinking on a bigger level. Besides the pandemic, <laughs> that didn't go the way we thought. We um, uh, right. Uh, yeah, I'll just address that. We uh, we have classes, garden classes, and a and farm tours, and that's been a big part of our income. But we have really uh, scaled it back, and we're hoping this year to do them. We'll do them all outside. Um, and we'll keep our group smaller. So, so that's something that um, has done really well until two years ago. And I, I think it's a good lesson. We're, we have to be flexible, right? We have to be a business that can absorb that kind of loss and promote a new book instead. We have to be able to, to switch gears really fast when we're so small. Um, as far as vegetable did you tell me your place is one acre we we have in cultivation one acre our our farm is five acres so we have uh, about four acres with three acres in pasture and the pasture um, contains donkeys the donkeys protect us from deer so they are in a corral pasture all the way around the place and then there's probably another acre that's given over to um outbuildings and driveways and my mom's flower garden stuff like that we um cool yeah it's a compact little place you know uh you can do a whole lot we grow more food on this little place than we can use uh, it's so you know our climate is absolutely incredible it's Part of why people, why Europeans came here anyway, was they were looking for places to grow lots of food. Well, we can do it. Our biggest challenge is preserving that food. And how come you don't go to market and like sell it? Is it too far? Because you said you're kind of out in the country. No, we tried. Um, we tried one time to deal with restaurants in the closest town to us, which is Augusta, Georgia. And it, it went really well, but I just realized at some point that with the um, with regulations of the food industry, that it's just an entirely different business from the bulb business that we were already in. So it was like, are we going to get into this and do it right? Or are we going to focus on the thing that we've we've been working on a long time? Um, so we just decided to grow food for ourselves and our friends. And, you know, we use a lot of it to trade. We trade uh, with a local um, pork farmer. So we trade some of our veggies for meat. We have traded them with a mushroom grower nearby. Um, you, you ask about things that failed, though. You know, uh, we in our climate getting cool season crops established is really hard so because it's really hot when we need to establish carrots and beets um, turnips all of those things we start in november when it's still warm but we need them to grow through the winter so that's always one of our biggest struggles is putting those crops in when the soil is still 80 degrees and the sun is still hot and trying to get those tender little carrots to come up and to live for the month that it's going to be until it's cool when they can really thrive. I think understanding, no matter where you are, understanding the cycles of your climate is so important. And especially now that we have so many people moving from the north into the south, I, I talked to lots of northerners who don't understand that we can only grow our carrots in the wintertime. And same thing goes with flowers. Larkspur, that's a wintertime plant for us. 
one of um why are people moving from the north to the south we're like people are moving here like in crazy numbers like i think we are the number one state people are moving to is idaho and then montana and utah are tied for second i just read in the paper like i literally took a screenshot of it because i was just like oh yeah it's um i you know our uh you don't we, you don't want me to get into politics about why we're moving we're, we um we southern states are seeking population they seek factories they seek production we give those kind of um industries huge tax breaks to come and then people follow and of course people want to come for the climate and the romance you know people look at uh, see pictures and movies of Charleston and Savannah, and it seems uh, romantic and 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 beautiful, and it and it is. Um, I'm I'm sad that we don't have better zoning to deal with the the influx of people. But what I can do is at least help people understand how to grow their own food, especially now with the price of food rising. Like I said, we grow in a very small space all the vegetables that we need. So I want to be able to help those. Um, okay, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for some secrets on how you're growing so much food in a small space, because that is the number one thing, my listeners, and I'll never forget Alan Dinko telling me, Jackie, the number one thing we want to hear is how to grow better produce and more produce. So what, okay. what are some tips? So for I, well, I should today? tell you what um, small space small means space. to us. Our, our vegetable garden is about um, 50 by 50. It's absolutely no till. It hadn't been tilled in, in a decade at least. Um, and we have, we have beautiful soil. We, we grow by what, what people call the lasagna method. You know, we layer in cardboard. We layer in compost. Um, we layer in hay. And then we grow, we add in cover crop. So we'll grow beans in order to enrich the soil. Um, we don't have walkways. We don't have space given over to, no, I should back up. Of course we have walkways, but we don't have very big walkways. We don't have space given over to, um, to big walkways or to the rows that you would have if you were tilling. The, I guess the real key to it though, is understanding rotation. We have essentially three seasons. So we have our um, spring crop, our summer crop, and our late, our late fall crop. And we just have to make space for all of those things. I don't have a plan. I don't have it laid out in a, a shuffle, you know, with a three-year plan of this gonna go here and that's gonna go there. But I know that coming up in a month, I'm going to need a big area to plant the potatoes. Um, I, I think another key to growing in a small space is figuring out what you can grow well and doing it and not getting sucked into growing what you really sort of dream of, but you might end up devoting a lot of space to and not getting a good return on it. Uh, does that make sense? Um, I feel like I'm talking to my husband. These are all <laughs> things that he does. And like, um, you know, he's really dialed in how to grow potatoes, how to grow carrots. And so those are the things, green beans. He's always, and he kind of rotates. And I'm curious about like, his theory is that um, he doesn't want to have permanent rows because every year he kind of switched, like one year it'll be like vertical. And then the next year he switches to like horizontal and he's always like kind of rotating the dirt and the soil as much as like where he puts the crops. Like if the potatoes are in the Southeast corner one year, then the next year he puts them like in the Northwest corner um, and just tries to like move everything around. So it's never in the same place, but he also doesn't really have like a stringent garden plan. He just kind of I don't know, somehow he remembers it all. Exactly. I mean, I do take notes and I draw like a diagram and a little map, but I don't know that I've ever seen him go back and look at the maps <laughs> that I draw every year. I do like usually try to put like the dates of when he puts what seeds in where 
And then I try to remember to put in like, when does he harvest something? I was surprised after, you know, 20 something years of data that I went back and found that like, it's the first two weeks in April between April 7th and April 14th was pretty much the window where he put like the, you know, stuff that can go in the ground when you can first work at like the lettuce and um, what like potatoes go in right away. Um, just like I was surprised at how much he planted in that one window, despite all the weather changes and things. And so sometimes when it's like March and it's like feels like you should be getting in the soil, I had those notes and was like, nope, April, you know, 7th is when you should be putting it. Or one year we had like tons of, we got like this crazy snow with the first week of April, but then it kind of all just melted away and he was still able to get everything in the ground by the 14th of April. So it's kind of interesting to see that, but anyway, yeah, it totally makes sense to me, but I'm glad you shared that with listeners. You know, another um, idea that I really love in, in, in my book, Deep Rooted Wisdom, I, interviewed one of my mentors who's um who's actually Haitian but she's lived in the U.S. forever but she does something that she remembered her family in Haiti doing and that was to kind of have a neighborhood understanding of who's growing what no it was no formal arrangement but she grew and today still she grows only um fruits and and she also grows her tea plants, but she lives in Miami Shores, which is a suburb, a small suburb, and she doesn't have a lot of room. So she specializes in these fruits, and then she trades with and has an understanding with a, a small local farm for vegetables. And she just said, you know, I can't, I can't do it all, so I have to do something well, and that gives me a commodity, and you find somebody else who does does say cucumbers well and you just plan an informal trade with them hey um you asked me about some of my earlier you asked me about some of my favorite um favorite reading and like and websites and i mentioned something called garden rant um i don't yeah susan harris right yeah i love garden rant it's not really a how-to but it's a it's a philosophy i would say it's a a place for gardeners who like to read. So I do really love that. Um, other, other sites that I go to um, a lot tend to be, tend to be like that. So not so much uh, hands-on how-to things, but big issues to think about, like should I till or when do I till? Um, I go to, I read a blog that, Clemson Extension. Clemson is our ag our ag college here, and of course every every state has an ag extension. And there's sometimes um the ag extensions tend to be a little more chemical focused than I am, but I I'm not worried about that. I can filter that out, and they're always right on with the dates that like you were talking about. How do you know when to do this? Um, you know they have they have decades and decades of experience with farmers and in the past they worked really closely with hands small backyard farmers so they're they're another good source um and then my my books and magazines are are really weird i get i guess i get the american gardener from the american hort society um I tend to look for very specialized books. So a book that I bought recently uh, is titled We Are Each Other's Harvest. And it is written about African-American farmers throughout the, the country. And some of the um, writing is done by the author and some of it is done by uh, the people that she interviews or wants to feature. That was a book I really loved. Again, not so much how-to. I think if you um, you want that how-to information, you need to look really locally, look at your botanical gardens, look at your local organizations. But when you're looking for for inspiration and and big considerations, there are awesome books like that that are coming out, seems like more and more frequently. 
Well, have you read Farming While Black by Leah Penniman? You know, I think they might. I think they might be um, somehow connected. Uh, I don't know, but it was it's definitely like, if not my top favorite gardening book, it is up there. I was amazed. I just got it this last spring, but it was one of my all time favorite books. So um, the part of my show I call getting to the root of things, which is, you know, like the lightning round, like quick questions starts out with like, do you have a least favorite activity of the garden? Something you got to kind of force yourself to go out and do? Uh, I don't have a least favorite activity, I, I guess. Is there something I avoid, Matthew? Matthew watches me. He might, what do I make you do, Matthew? <laughs> uh, no, I don't really have, I can't say that I really have a least favorite activity. I, I, I love the hands-on aspect of gardening. I love getting dirty and being dirty and um, being into it. I love the smells. Um, I love that when people say that because I feel like that's really inspiring to listeners. On the flip side, what is your favorite activity? My favorite activity is just, is dividing, dividing and separating, mm -hmm. like because it, it gets my hands way down in the dirt and it has this, um, it lets us see a, a reveal, like it lets us see the the heart, the root of it, it lets us understand like what these beautiful organisms that are around us all the time really, really are, where they come from. I'd, I'd love uh, digging something up. Do you grow irises by any chance? We grow a few iris. We can grow what are um, called bearded iris. We don't grow many um, of the, the really pretty showy iris that would thrive. Just curious if you have any tips for, cause like I, I've, I've, I split up my irises one year into a bunch of different breads. Like I literally felt like they were like crying out to me going, we're too crowded. We're too crowded. <laughs> you know, we need more space. But then this is like almost four years ago now. And like, they don't, they won't bloom where I move them. And I'm just like, oh, why did I, you know, move like, they're just finally starting. Like last year I had like three plants bloom maybe in each bed out of like moving like 20 irises into each bed. And I'm just like, just curious if you have any. No, I don't, I'm sorry. That's a little That's outside right. of my range. How about the best gardening advice you've ever received? Um, my best gardening advice came from a mentor early on and it was take a notebook with you. And I have amended that over the years. There was a long time that I took a micro cassette recorder with me. And now I take a smartphone with me. I was just going to say, now you have your phone. You know, well, I love that because like we came out with a garden journal and I always feel like, and lots of my listeners have said that's their favorite tool even is their notebook and journal from the years. I think that's perfect answer. Were you going to say something? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, I thought that was good. Okay. How about your favorite tool? Like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Well, a, a pocket knife. I have a pocket knife with me all the time. Sure. How about a favorite recipe you like to eat or cook from the garden? You know, I am... Um... I just like anything simple. Like, do y'all grow collards? Other people throughout the South, I know, grow collards. I'm not sure how popular they are outside, but um, one of the recipes that I learned for collards when I was uh, in, I went to university in Africa and Zambia was to do it with a peanut sauce. And that uh, provides a sweetness and that kind of balances the, the collards as well as providing a little bit of protein. So it it's an easy way to just stir fry some collards and peanut butter and water, a little bit of garlic, and it makes a, a good high protein complete meal. Okay, can we back up a quick second? How did you get to go to college in Zambia? <laughs> I was totally naive. I thought it was a good idea. Um, and, and it turned was it? Uh, yeah, it turned out to be a great experience. Um, it had a lot of pitfalls, but I, it was funny. I had never been on an airplane before. Um, I had never been north of Washington, D.C., uh, and I went on a 
uh, 2000 mile. And what did you study there? Flower, the reason I chose the was it in English? Yeah, the reason I chose the University of Zambia was that it was in English and it had in the past a very good botany program, and it still had a couple of English um, British botany professors. So no, it was awesome, a, a, a formative experience. It it had some. We had some, I had some problems, you know, like any 19 year old kid who went halfway around the world. I was um, probably of the last generation to ever send a telegram, but that was how he communicated <laughs> at the time. You, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I was like scared to come to Montana when I was 19. <laughs> like I didn't move here till I was 21. And uh, I can't even imagine going to Zambia. I'd still be scared to go to Zambia today in 2022. Um, I really, I'm kind of like, I really love travel like, and, uh, and I love going to places. Um, I've, I've taught in Haiti and I, I know you're going to ask me later. Can I jump to um, one of my favorite environmental organizations? Sure. Um, so I taught at this agricultural school in Haiti. And when they invited me, I thought this is kind of weird. Like, why do they want to learn learn ornamental horticulture? Don't they have more important things to do? But the like grow food. But they were already doing an amazing job with an organic farm growing food. And they were looking ahead and they realized that there were some resorts being built. They realized that a lot of international grants and funds come with a requirement of planting. So if you build a new hospital, you have to have certain grounds. So they asked me to come in to do a trial um, three-week course on garden design and maintenance. Um, and I really fell in love with that school. I thought that was an amazing vision. They have continued to thrive. They have um, now a very strong presence with donors in South Carolina. And that school, if you, um, if you wanted to find it, it's, it's part of an international group called Partners in Agriculture, but the name, the title of the school is CFFL. So you can just Google CFFL Haiti and you find the links to this agricultural school. Wow, that is fascinating. You have lived such an amazing life. Are you going to come up with like an autobiography? <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I don't know. No uh no i, I think thank you, you. Should. i've been i've been really lucky to see lots of the world and um you know and to do it on a i've always done it on a backpack sort of level and i have seen mm -hmm. and met lots of real gardeners and and real people and understood their issues um and and they understand mine i right now i would really really love to go to mexico i'm just debating i have a friend who's a pineapple farmer there but just debating waiting for the waiting for the safety of it to waiting for things to change a little bit oh my gosh that sounds so awesome sort of i'm not a hot weather girl so i, I have no <laughs> desire to go to mexico and it terrifies me but like going to haiti would terrify me like isn't it like aren't there a million haitian immigrants because it's like super like am i not right about that like um, Isn't that where like there's a huge influx of people down on the border because it's so violent? There? Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's not quite there. Well, a there are different parts. So where where I was is basically the breadbasket. It's uh, it's beautiful and green and has lots of water, um, and and is a is as much calmer. But we were definitely within the college in a in an enclosed compound. Um, we could go out. You know, we, we went out and went to the local markets and we were often with uh, a Haitian guide, but not always. I, I spent um, five days. Uh, the, there were three students, three other American students, and I spent five days doing a, a bus trip out to um, some of the real remote parts of Haiti and into the, uh, the, the, the western side of Dominican Republic, where they do lots of amazing agriculture. So, so yeah, you definitely have to be very, very uh, cautious. Um, it's probably easier for men than for women. Um, you know, less, 
Do you speak French? Do they, they, they speak French? No, there? they speak um they speak Creole. That it's their own language, and it's actually actually French didn't help very much. And I was really what so in school I had a translator, so I taught with a translator. Um, oh, and she was an, an American student who actually became a very good friend and came and worked with us later. Did an internship on our farm, but when we were out, um. You know, there. I've never been anywhere where you you couldn't kind of figure out from hand movements and gestures and finding somebody with a little bit of English, like where the bathroom is. Um, but Jen was with us on that trip, and she spoke. She had great Creole, so so she did all of the the hard and the hard work and made things easy for us on that trip. Man, you really need to write an autobiography. <laughs> um, okay, well, you are probably like, I got to get back to work. So tell listeners, how do they find your website? Where do they get your books? Like, how do they learn more about you? Are you on Instagram? Are you on social media? We're uh, on Instagram, yes, and on Facebook. And I think that's about it. We um, we write. I have a, some of my fiction is on Medium, and it's all under my name. Uh, Jinx Farmer. Our website is jinxfarmer.com. And that's J-E-N-K-S. Right? That's right. J okay. And we uh, we sell our books on our website. We would love for people to buy from us, but they are also on Amazon and on other sites like that. Um, we, I think that's, that's, yeah, we have YouTube videos. So if you want to see one of those 400 pound crinums and how we go about digging it, uh check us out on youtube well thank you so much for sharing with us today just this was great and i'm so glad matthew reached out to me and um just uh i know listeners will love us thank you so much you guys have a great day all right day. you too that was fun want to donate directly to the show you can buy me a cup of coffee where your donation goes directly to support the green organic garden podcast it helps for thing, pay for things like hosting the MP3 files, maintaining the website. It's super easy. I'll put the link in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening. And remember, grow local.